Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And joining us this week is Dr. Catherine Tabaldi, who is a research fellow at the Institute for Research of Male Supremacism. Thanks for joining us, Kat. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoy your podcast. Just to begin with, looking at your dissertation, how much Nazi ASMR did you have to listen to? (laughs) I spent about two years, um, about three hours a day, listening to Nazi ASMR and homeschooling and natural health videos and interviewing the women who make these videos and the women who use them to teach their kids. Sounds absolutely dreadful, to be honest. Uh, Could you tell us a bit about what your research involves and how you got interested in it? Well, the funny thing is it actually sounds really good. They master this absolutely wonderful form of address that's very soft and sweet and kind of sensual and desirable. So a lot of what my research does is look at the ways in which these women make Nazism seem domestic, desirable, fun and enjoyable for the participants. I do digital ethnography combined with fieldwork. I was in New Orleans, Louisiana, which is a wonderful place to be. If you have to study Nazis, you might as well do it in one of the most fun cities in the world. So I would watch a lot of right-wing media. I would then interview women who use that media in homeschools, Christian nationalist and white nationalist homeschool communities. Is this a, a new development? How do you relate the propaganda that's been produced by these women to uh, earlier forms of, uh, I guess, uh, extreme right or, or fascist propaganda? That's a really good question. I mean, women have always been involved in fascist propaganda. You can, I mean, Kathleen Blee has amazing work on this. And Christian in particular, far-right Christian nationalist and white Christian nationalist homeschools have been something for a long time. But what's interesting now and what I think is changing is the sort of interpenetration of the far-right and the Christian right. And I think that these ASMR videos are sort of a new thing, sort of YouTube allows people to sort of make public the private performances of intimacy and care that have long been used to uphold white supremacy and to use them for more explicitly political purposes. Can you explain for the listener what the importance of uh, these women adopting an explicitly anti-feminist perspective is for right-wing organising? And how is it expressed in their propaganda? There was a newspaper article a little while back that said trad wives, these kind of anti-feminist white nationalist women, are they white supremacists or is this just fun domesticity? And is this element of sort of, is it maybe just fun domesticity? Is it maybe kind of okay that their anti-feminism sort of permits? I think, you know, not to brand myself as a man-hating narcissistic woman, as one of my exes used to call me, but misogyny, you know, is 
really widely accepted in American culture. We have all these Christmas movies about women who fall in love with small town men and find Jesus and family values and give up their careers. You know, this sort of anti-feminist narrative that these women push is something that's really broadly accepted. So then once they can start to sell this anti-feminism as domestic care and love and family, it's quite easy then to say, okay, let's politicize this even further. If we're loving our men, let's love our white man. Let's use these sort of skills to promote a white nation. And in terms of the producers themselves or the, the individual propagandists, aside from having this kind of shared commitment to uh, reinforcing or sustaining white male supremacy, were you able to detect any kind of were they distinguishable one from the other? Are there different schools, or you know, can can you I guess uh, elaborate on on uh, more on what's being produced and and how it's being produced? Yeah, um, my current research is looking at the different schools within these women. Some of them I call granola Nazis. They are more sort of into traditional health and wellness, maybe part of the homestead and community. Their vision of tradition is sort of 1850, before women had the right to vote. Ironically, also the time when the government was giving people the greatest amount of welfare perhaps ever, but they don't really support that part. And so there'll be like Isla Stewart, a wife with a purpose, who sort of wears a bonnet and wants to have as many kids as possible, cooks healthy natural food, someone like Blonde Buttermaker, who's really into like traditional um, Northern European methods of food preparation as sort of a kind of personal health, body health, and then also sort of the health of the race. Um, and you have more like kind of the 1950s, kind of like almost LARPing uh, housewife, Lacey Lynn wears pearls and talks about serving her husband and is sort of play acting like she's in a 1950s TV show. She'll even have these videos where she cuts in herself kind of into a show like Father Knows Best and sort of places herself and then also by extension the viewer within this kind of like cinematic 1950s world. But then from there, you know, we'll do these videos like the 1965 Red Pill, which says that like feminism, multiculturalism, immigration laws are ruining our country and getting us away from this sort of mediatized, idyllic world. Um, Then you have the woo-woo Nazis, sort of like tarot card hipsters who also believe in white nationalism. I find them fascinating. People who talk about manifesting and um, decalcifying your pineal gland and how you need to sort of be one with the world. But then also this opens out into sort of this white nationalism within the yoga sphere, kind of the conspirituality community. I could keep going for like hours about all the different kinds of women Nazis, but it's sort of how religious are they and what is the time period that they reference as most traditional and most ideal that they want to return to that makes them different from each other. Well, I mean, we shouldn't disregard the importance of having a decalcified pineal gland, but uh, (laughs) over the course of the pandemic, there have been these... uh, this cohort of women within the wellness community who found themselves, uh, I guess, vulnerable or amenable to red pilling or pilling of some description within the conspirituality movement that you mentioned. Are there sort of active efforts within these tradwife spaces to sort of bring those people in? Definitely. I mean, this is a long-standing thing on the right to go into sort of eco-communities and wellness communities and push uh, white nationalist propaganda. And there's also sort of just long-standing ideological connections between white nationalists and these groups that we sort of always thought of as left or soft left. Sort of interest in nature as giving deep meaning to both to individual experience, to there's a certain vision of gender in particular that's very much in in common between the sort of yoga community and the trad wives that I study, this idea that there's like this 
divine masculine and divine feminine and that the world is made up of these gendered essences. You know, it's I heard this first from my yoga teacher, but it actually sounds like something I would have heard more from from one of my research participants. Something I've observed in regards to that is that when there is this entryism, there's not often uh, a lot of pushback, perhaps because they don't have the political framework to push back against it. Is that something that you've seen or have you seen people sort of uh, also rejecting white nationalism within these sort of crunchy spaces? I think a lot of ex- explicit white nationalism, at least initially, gets rejected, even though a lot of sort of the conservation movement is, is itself quite nationalist. But sort of the, the soft nationalism that these trad wives will push is much more acceptable, especially on, in spaces like social media, where it's so much about the visuality and the image. So if a trad wife is saying, like, I cooked my husband these all-natural cookie butter protein bars, it, it doesn't read as like this awful white nationalist image. It's this sort of very nice, soft there's been a lot of work done, a really great work on pastel QAnon, so something like that, I think. There is pastel QAnon and the, the, I guess the, the area known as conspirituality, but I also think about uh, well, so-called traditional values in the context of religion and uh, the Catholic Church and, I guess, uh, Orthodox, various Orthodox Christian religions. How important is, I guess, more mainstream forms of religion in informing uh, the views that are espoused by these women? I think that there's a divide in the community. Some of them, like Lana Loktef, uh, support more like a pagan religion. There's a lot of like Odinists um, within the traditionalist community. Um, then there's also a lot of very deeply religious Christians, a lot of trad cats, a lot of people talking about going to church and wearing the veil. So for a part of my research, I went to a lot of very conservative, very traditional religious services. And I grew up atheist myself, so I really had no idea what I was doing, but I remember being in New Orleans and going to a Latin mass, which was wonderful because I couldn't be offended by anything that was said since I didn't understand it. And uh, seeing someone uh, show up fully veiled and then someone else sitting next to them show up with cat ears and like a sort of, I don't know what sort of Mardi Gras type costume. And I thought that that was somehow one of the most fascinating religious spaces I'd ever been in. We've seen within, I guess, the male extreme right community, uh, this tension between you know, the Tradcaths and the Odinists, which they tend to resolve by going out into the woods and beating each other up a bit. How is that sort of uh, tension mediated within female spaces? I remember um, Talia Levin's amazing book, Culture Warlords, where she talks about this fight. I, I, I admire the research so much. It would be my dream to uh, be able to go on Nazi dating sites and try to solicit love letters. The women that I look at, there's a lot of talk of like who is a trad thought, like who is a real traditionalist and who doesn't fit into this community. There's a lot of celebration of Russian women and Russian Orthodox women as sort of the purest trads. And But I think that there's also a lot of spirit of like friendship among the women and a lot of celebration of right-wing womanhood as being in true community with each other. And using that to differentiate themselves from feminists and leftists who are portrayed as kind of mean girls or girl bosses. So they often put on this front of all being connected together, even if some of them are very strongly religious and some of them are more atheist or paganist. I think if I was a, a you know a trad wife influencer, my Google alert for myself would get a fair workout. The, do you ever get any feedback from the people that you look at when they see that they've been you know put into an academic study? You know... I'm actually sad that I've never been harassed or trolled on Twitter. Like my Twitter is the like nicest, friendliest space in the world. And my friends get trolled and made fun of. And I just, I've never gotten a single negative comment. I don't know, maybe 
I look too much like a trad wife myself, so they would feel bad making fun of me. I think I have gotten a lot of pushback from the homeschooling community. Um, they tend to be very suspicious of authority and suspicious of institutions. So if I ask too many questions, they would start to get very frustrated and, and angry with me. And one called me an agent provocateuse, which I don't think is the correct French, but I was still quite flattered, the idea that somehow I could be like this provocateur and a spy. Um, but then it was quite sad when I was kicked out of the community. And uh, I just saw In terms of the how these women sustain themselves, what attempts are made to monetize their performances and their propaganda and how successful are they? Is it, is it necessary to their um, activities? Because I assume most of them, or if not all of them, would have you know, uh, a breadwinner, not themselves. Yeah, uh, there's a certain irony in using sort of the affordances of platform capitalism to make, you know, it's very neoliberal and make all this money and then to, you know, be advocating exactly the opposite. I've looked into this a little bit and it doesn't seem like they're honestly making very much money. It seems like they're making, I don't know, probably they're covering their own costs, but it also could be that they're getting revenue streams I don't know about. Uh, I'm not the, you know, the best expert in finding out where, you know, how Nazis get their money. But a lot of them do have also side businesses. It's kind of like mompreneur, uh, I think is the thing. Mm -hmm. So they'll sell like homemade paintings or jewelry, especially sort of the granola Nazi farmstead types. Um, so they'll be using Instagram, you know, at once as a business. And then also to sort of share their ideas. They have sort of an ongoing research project on two women involved with um, Patriotic Alternative in the UK who sell soap and teas and they're actually the major funders of their movement which is kind of surprising um they saw this kind of coffee called the great awakening it's just it's really ridiculous i don't know what's with nazis and like selling soap it's like it just seems like that's their that's really their thing so of course all pure all natural all healthy uh, all white soap uh called i think it's clean and pure really <laughs> well, too on the nose, really one other question in this context in terms of i guess you know money making or political economy, I guess in terms of assigning women this, this role within the family um, and, as you said uh, earlier, Kat, um, some refer back to the 1850s when there was various forms of economic supports available to white families in the United States. But I wonder, you know, are there, are there serious arguments being made about the, the role of the welfare state in supporting the family? Is that something that these women uh, advocate or is it the case that they're uh, more, I guess, for lack of a or want of a better term, you know, frontiers people and the families they want to construct and to sustain are intended to be self-sufficient. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the 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 truth is, yeah, the, the 1950s and the 1850s and these like very traditional eras that they celebrate were, you know, times when there was a lot of government support for families. Uh, Homestead Act, GI Bill, all these things. But this was also government support, you know, designed to ensure the white male-headed sort of breadwinner capitalist style family. So one of the things that these women do is very, very consciously and very carefully take arguments against the current economic system and recast them in terms of gender dispossession and gender roles. So if you're frustrated that you don't make enough money, that your work is too precarious, overly flexible, they'll recast this and say, the real issue is that women have to work now. The real issue is feminism only you know you could make enough money to own a woman if only you had a woman at home helping you then things would be better and i think that that's probably their major contribution to neoliberalism is to sort of 
reframe economic discontent as cultural dispossession. You're listening to Yana Passaran on 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Dr. Catherine Tabaldi about ladies of the far right and alter-education. One of your other areas of research is into what you describe as alt-education. Could you tell us what alter-education is? I mean, alt-education is just sort of a bad pun on alt-right that I came up with for my dissertation. But the idea is to look at sort of the ensemble of media and educational practices that the right engages in from homeschools to YouTube videos to right-wing podcasts and treat them all as sort of part of an educational apparatus. And I thought that this was important because there's so many discussions of the right as sort of undereducated, ignorant, isolated yokels. And I found this problematic first because, you know, many people on the right are well-educated. A lot of them are education majors. A lot of them are working really hard within their communities to teach this ideology. But secondly, because then it makes right-wing ideas seem like they're somehow innate, right? If if right-wingers are ignorant, then what do these ideas come from? Oh, it must be that human beings are naturally this way, sort of the Arlie Russell Hochschild. Oh, they have this deep story within them, as opposed to understanding that right-wing ideas aren't natural, but that they're naturalized and taught um, through this apparatus of power and through the work of many women. Beyond their educational background, I know we're talking about old education, but but homeschooling and I guess the right-wing movement generally, what can you say about the, I guess, class background and social background of some of those who've emerged as leading figures? Because I think think about, you know, highly educated figureheads like uh, Richard Spencer and so on. Are the women who are involved in the movement, are they from a similar background? What, what can you say about that? Yeah, I mean, the women that I interviewed, I mean, many of them have, you know, four to six kids and don't work. So, you know, they have money, right? That, that you know, they have partners who are, well, I'm sure they would call them husbands or whatever, my head of household, uh, who are making, you know, upwards of $150,000 a year. So to me, that's, you know, that's middle class, upper middle class. A lot of them are very well educated. They work in, you know, aerospace or they have PhDs in Greek and Latin. They were, you know, much smarter than me, um, much better educated than I am. They would read lists of books and ask me, oh, have you read this, 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 and this? You know, they're very proud to show off their their knowledge. And they live, you know, I would say very comfortably in, in many cases. But how they present homeschooling and staying home with your family, they're very careful to say this isn't something that only the privileged can do that actually you can um, save a lot of money, you can move to a rural area that's cheaper. And they're you know, really making an effort to make this seem more populist. But I didn't see that in my research participants. Um, I wonder, you know, sort of the pseudo-populism, you know, this isn't the first time that the right has tried to do that. So. One front that you've observed in uh, the alt-education uh War is the, the the war on woke within the university space, and I, I know you wrote an article uh, last year about the anti woke university, the University of Austin. Could you tell us a little bit about what that is and how it sort of fits into this sort of larger ecosystem? I hate them so much. I actually told my boyfriend if I am ever really upset to just ask me about the University of Austin, so I'll get distracted and be more angry at them. This is this ridiculous propaganda campaign to paint the university as, you know, super liberal. I mean, the university is too liberal from a, like a left point of view, but to, you know, paint the university is just full of these like angry, boring social justice hall monitors. And then right-wing ideas, instead of just being racist or stupid or, you know, well-accepted, hegemonic, boring ideas, can then be, you know, edgy and cool. It's like, you know, how do we make the 1950s seem edgy again? Oh, by, so you 
you, you paint the left university as woke, boring, ideologically conformist, and then all of your ideas about phrenology or whatever can seem like transgressive truth and free thinking. Yeah, one of the you know drivers behind this, of course, is the the intellectual dark web, which sort of seems to be walking a fine line between being trying to be edgy and being incredibly cringe. <laughs> that that's the best description of basically all of the far right that I think I've ever heard. Yeah, it's the fine line between edgy and cringe. I like that. We've also seen this uh, the war on school boards. Could you uh, talk a bit about how that fits into all of this? I am currently a research assistant for a project looking at um, Turning Point USA and their sort of professor watch list that they've now expanded to a school board watch list. And one thing I would say for the right is it's amazing how much they care. Like, I don't know who's on my school board. I don't know if we have school boards in London, but they, they're really well-informed and mobilize really well. And they, oh, there's another group about teaching CRT. There's like a watch a website where you can report if there's CRT being taught in your child's school. Uh, they, it's, they're really these sort of like astroturfed online watch lists and warning signs that, you know, do a really good job of sort of circulating fear and circulating these negative images of public schools. And my under, my intuition is that what they're doing is using this as a push to further defund and privatize public schools and replace them with online or vouchers. You see this with um, J.D. Vance when he was running, would say like, we need to defund CRT. We can't waste our money on expensive CRT things. And so I think that it's this far right push against what's being taught in order to sort of ensure a neoliberal defunding of the public schools. I mean, I'm in thinking about the uh, intellectual dark web and education in the Australian context, I think about organisations like Think, who've organised tours by various speakers, uh, publications like Quillette, which seem to have been reasonably successful. And I guess, yes, as Cam um, observed, the, the, there's some sense in which they combine some kind of edginess with a whole lot of cringe. But nonetheless, they seem to have been successful in, to some extent, reinvigorating, I suppose, right-wing and reactionary discourses within the educated middle class. What's your assessment of the, you know, does this movement have a future or will it be drawn back into more mainstream uh, conservatism? I mean, I feel like every Quillette is stupid. Oh, so dumb. I don't, what, is it, what does that even mean, Quillette? So they, yeah, this sort of fake reasonable center, right? The sort of like, how it's interesting to me they, the way they try to portray themselves as like edgy and this is like a thought crime to tell you this, but men and women are different. Uh, this sort of weird, like, Evo psych. We're, we're really the reasonable, smart, normal ones. And only in today's mad, crazy world of leftists is this, is this edgy. But, of course, they love that. I think every 10 years I've seen this. I remember when I was just going to school and I really loved science. The president of Harvard said, it's just science that women are not as good at science as men. And then a few years later... Um, Jonathan Haidt started saying that it's, you know, it's, it's a kind of religious fundamentalism to believe that men and women aren't different. Uh, the left is just as crazy as the, the right. And now it'll be Quillette. And then I think in another five years, it'll be something else about like women just innately have some sort of cooking part of our brain. And uh, and then five years will go by and it'll be something else stupid. So it's just a, a cavalcade of stupidity. That is, in fact, exactly how I would describe Quillette. Perfect. They should make that their new like subtitle there. <sighs> Well, I was going to ask um, you, Kat, about, speaking of Quillette and uh, research, uh, about CAR and a recent controversy 
surrounding the publication of an article which attacked anti-fascism. And I did note that the author, after, I guess, departing car, found a venue, an avenue for their views in uh, Quillette. Um, <laughs> of course, of course he did. The most predictable outcome of all. Uh, yeah, um, that article, I... What was it? Beware the anti-fascists, for they have become what they oppose. Like the, the style of writing in that area of the right, like alone, is a thought crime. That article caused, you know, quite a great stir. I left Carr, you know, in part because of that, and in part because of the way the the leadership um, tended to bully early career and especially female researchers and support people like McCann who brought in more of the funding because they were connected to um, CVE and anti-terrorist approaches that were better funded rather than sort of the younger generation of researchers who saw the far right less um, in terms of terrorism and more in terms of the broader right wing and were more interested in questions of like mainstreaming and things like that sort of were a little bit more explicitly political and a little bit more on the left. And I have to say, I loved all the great anti-fascists at Carr. That's the best part of being there is meeting all of these wonderful people who study the far right because they don't like it and don't want it to keep running our countries. One thing I thought was interesting in terms of the response by the director was they made explicit reference to um, or attempted to separate, I guess, um, good uh, pedagogical principles from principled anti-fascism. And it's a kind of, I guess, not entirely a novel move, but in terms of your own work, how do you approach those questions where, you know, there's a kind of, um, I guess, pressure perhaps or a sensibility that you're wanting to produce uh, objective scholarship of some sort while also being committed to and and being interested in, I suppose, um, uh, combating the far right? Yeah, I'm very clear about where I come from. And what my stance is, you know, that I, I come from a, a family that was sort of um, was a little bit liberal that really got pushed towards the far right by a lot of this media. And so to me, this is something to be fought, to be combated. And that I don't I don't think it's possible to have any kind of. OK, yeah, I think it's possible to have objective knowledge about the right. And I think one of the objective knowledges that we have is that they're bad. Like, like that's it's perhaps a bit simplistic, but I I can't get away from that. And well, there's a good body of evidence to support it. I'd say. <laughs> I would, I would agree. I think, but it is of course important to have a detailed analysis, and you know this is why I, I think that the tools of linguistic anthropology and the semiotics that I use, you know, so that we can really understand what they're doing, it's important. But to me, it's always understanding with the aim of better supporting. Uh, better stopping them, basically understanding, for example, that these discourses around like the left behind or accepting this idea that um, people go to the far right because they're resentful or dispossessed, in fact, really aren't true. And if we do a close semiotic analysis of what they're what they're saying online, that it's actually presenting this idea of embattled heroism and being on the right as being really fun and like kind of you're in the civil war too, electric boogaloo, or you're this amazing mother of the nation. Here you are, you know, you're the wife with a purpose. You have six kids. You're taking care of your husband. You aren't just a mom, but you have this deep existential meaning. You're saving the nation by doing this, right? These are desirable discourses. So that's sort of where my work comes in is, yeah, I want to produce objective knowledge about what the right's doing, but only so that we can make them stop it. Well, that seems like a good spot to leave it. Kat, thanks so much for joining us. If people want to find you on Twitter, you are at Kat underscore Tabaldi. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It was really a pleasure.
Well, Andy, we'll be back next week. Global Intifada is up next. See you later. See you then. a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home we'll drop them in at 3CR and put them in the Books and Boots bin Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au we love a good book